Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you today as a representative of Chosen People Ministries and speaking in place of uh, Paul Cruz. And Paul and or Linda is here and Paul is traveling. So it's been uh, a pleasure to be with you this morning and, uh, and also in this, this service. I'd like to read the last a couple of verses of the, the passage uh, that we're uh, looking at today. It's the good news. We've been looking at the bad news, uh, and, uh, and yet it, it says in verse 16, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, and bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And uh, may you uh, uh, leave today perhaps with a, a different perspective on things that than you had when you came. Um, I know it's difficult when a, a guest speaker comes in. I'm not familiar with all of you. I don't know you very well at all, but I trust that the Word of God will uh, bring us together in uh, what we study today. Uh, I want to talk about um, something that's very near and dear to my heart, and it has to do with mission. Uh, I uh, get the privilege of, of being a vice president of Chosen People Ministries and director of the Feinberg Center for Messianic Jewish Studies. That's a mouthful, but it's a Master's of Divinity program accredited through Talbot School of Theology or Biola University. We meet in Brooklyn, and we're surrounded by 80,000 ultra-Orthodox Jewish people. So we're in the right place, and we're trying to make a a dent in that. But here's the question that I want to raise, and uh, it's been plaguing me for a number of years now. That is, what is mission? What do we mean when we talk about mission? This is Mission Sunday, and and all of us are excited about what's going on out there. But what is going on out there, and and what should be going on? Uh, I think of the term mission, and we usually, in modern days, talk about a missional church. And a missional church usually, these days, means a church that's engaged with the community, right? And engaged in such a way as to do social justice and to, to meet the needs of people. That's good. I'm suggesting, however, that missional can be sometimes uh, defined as a soup kitchen. Uh, and evangelical has to be defined as a savior. So if we're not presenting the gospel, if we're not telling people how to get right with their God, then we shouldn't be calling ourselves mission at all. You see, the sin of man produces the anger of God. Something that's lost in our culture, we don't often think about that too much, but it's the sin of man that produces an angry response from God, a punitive response. And we're going to see today that much of what is said in the first chapter of Isaiah is all about the punishment that God meets out upon those who have rejected his grace and gone their own way, and the condemnation of a people that has strayed from uh, the law. And then also, the good news is that there's an appeal in this passage. It's an appeal to repent. But it's a repentance in accordance with the law of God, which no one can really keep. 
And so the beautiful thing about the gospel in Isaiah chapter 1 is that it ends with an invitation. And that invitation we just read, uh, come, let's reason together. Uh, You're sinful. But it doesn't have to stay that way. Uh, Your sins can be made white as snow. Uh, And that's the gospel. I think that uh, no matter what we do, we need to point out the truth of the gospel in that. Because repentant faith guarantees the grace of God. He will always listen to those who cry out in humility, who have admitted and recognized that they are sinful too. So what is the application of a passage like this or a message like this? Well, uh, I think that uh, in our work, we're always working with the Jewish population. And we have to uh, develop relationships. And we have to ingratiate ourselves in some way so that we'll gain a hearing uh, there are many ways to do that. I, I brought one book with me that, uh, just to show it to you, I don't know whether, Linda, did you have any of these books in the back? Uh, probably not. This is this is a book by Randy Newman, Dr. Randy Newman. It's one of the best new books that's out called Engaging with Jewish People, Understanding Their World and Sharing the Good News. So if you are surrounded by Jewish people and you have an interest in making the message known, then this is a great one. But what is that message? That message is the same whether we're talking about ancient Israel or whether we're talking about the unsaved religious groups around the world or whether we're even talking about the redeemed church that still has an old sin nature running around. Uh, What we must confess is that there is sin that angers God and the anger is only assuaged by the work and the blood of Jesus Christ. So it comes down a, a little funnel. The nation of Israel... All humanity, even the church, and you and me. So I hope that that's one of the things that you'll uh, come away with today. Uh, When we look at this passage, we must go back to the first few verses as well. uh, Because uh, that sets the stage. As uh, Doug read uh, prior to the the passage on grace is the, the the passage on condemnation and punishment. So let's... Let's take a look at this, if, if, if you don't mind. And under the rubric of punishment, I want you to notice a couple of things. Israel does not know her God. It says in verse 2 of the passage, if you have your open Bible, you can read that. But listen carefully as I read. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, and the donkey, his master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God is calling on heaven and earth to hear his charge against Israel. The Bible is not just a book for one nation. It's for all. And he describes himself as Israel's owner. And he uses the name Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, the faithful, the one that, the, the word, the name that appears over Uh, nearly 500 times only in the book of Isaiah. It's the creator God. And as the creator God, he has a certain right. He has the right of ownership. He has the right to require that his created world, especially human beings, must obey. Man is obligated to do so. Ecclesiastes tells us that the whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. And the Catechism says, as you well know, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
So God is charging the nation. He's saying, I'm about to punish you, and I have punished you because of your disobedience. And he also says that they have less wisdom than a domesticated beast. The reason that God, or that Israel did not know God, is because she didn't consider God. And when men respond to the light, when they consider, when they seek understanding, then God is faithful to provide more understanding so that salvation can occur. We know this is true in the New Testament. Take the example of Cornelius, the Gentile, or the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Response to light brings more light, even salvific light. I love this quote from Harry Ironside. It's an old one, but uh, an oldie but a goodie, as they say. That's what I am, an oldie but a goodie, right? He says this, "May uh, May we not well challenge our hearts as to how far we really know our owner. To what extent do we sanctify Christ as Lord? He's our owner now. Other lords have had dominion over us, but by him only will we now make mention of the ineffable name, Lord. The kingdom of God for us is that of the Son of his love. To the crucified one, we owe unswerving allegiance a part of which we have not known before now, is the Word of God. But do we really know it? Does hunger drive us to it? Are we often found foolishly sniffing in the air, as that animal does? But faced in the presence of the Lord, these are solemn questions that need to be asked. The imagery is beautiful, isn't it? It's like a a dog or a cattle or something out just trying to figure out which way to go. Sometimes uh, believers are like that, and Israel certainly was. So the first thing to note is that Israel does not know her God. Secondly, Israel is laden with iniquity. Verses 4 through 6 tell us that as we read the passage, it says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged from him. This is an indication that Israel is quite sinful. Now, I would imagine you wouldn't want to take on some of the uh, uh, characteristics that that are used to describe Israel. But I wonder if we could just think a little bit about how we at least have a propensity toward some of these things. I did a little uh, list from Isaiah alone of the names that are that Israel is called rebellious children, diseased body, Sodom and Gomorrah, religious hypocrites, given over to harlotry even, involved in murder. Their leaders, their princes are rebellious and corrupt. They're given over to idolatry. They're inflamed with wine and music. They draw iniquity with cords of pride. They call good evil and evil good. They are wise in their own eyes. They are hypocritical, lying children. They hate the prophets of God. They trust in perverseness. They call themselves Israelites, but not in truth or righteousness. And a verse that you all know from chapter 64, their righteousness is as filthy rags. Well, 
This is the uh, description of a people that um, deserves punishment. And why do they deserve punishment? It's because they are judged by holiness. Now, not all of us are perfect, are we? Some of us may be a little closer to that than others. But none of us can claim perfection, yet it's God who requires perfection. Be ye holy as I am holy, the Holy One of Israel. Appearing the first time in this passage, but 30 times in the book of Isaiah. 29 times referring to Jehovah, God the Father. And one time referring to the Messiah himself in chapter 49, verse 7. The Holy One of Israel. You see, God judges on the basis of his own holiness, and the, and by that standard, everybody fails. We've all come short of God's righteousness, Romans 3.23, and the stated, or the standard of God's law is perfect righteousness. It's like a mirror that we hold up to show our sinfulness. And apart from God's law, man deceives himself into thinking that he is righteous. That's why we need the law. That's why we need the Old Testament scriptures in particular. And we judge ourselves according to some human standard, some kind of philosophy. Relativism is the most prominent philosophy that has to do with morality. Wouldn't you agree? It's okay for you to do whatever you want to do, and I'll do whatever I want to do. Uh, but as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I can do whatever I blank well please, is the attitude that prevails today. Or perhaps a religious tradition. I judge my holiness based upon the unholiness of other religious traditions. You know, those out there who are not even believers, right? So we tend to do those kinds of things. Or judging ourselves by other fallen human beings. Well, it seems to me that this is pretty clear that punishment comes when we uh, are laden with iniquity. And so the anger is produced. The anger of God is in this passage. And again, we don't speak about it very much, but I like to think of those times when Jesus displayed his righteous indignation and he cleansed the temple. And he did so because of the trafficking that was going on within its precincts. And so the anger of God does boil over and we find it throughout the Old Testament in particular. But don't be uh, fooled. While we have a, a loving Lord full of grace, he's also a loving Lord full of truth. And there will be judgment at a point in time. The Passover lamb has come. The Passover lamb has given his life so that we can have life. But the lamb is coming again. But next time it will be as the lion of the tribe of Judah. All right. God has punished Israel. And so this is what he says in the next uh, uh, few verses, verses 5 and following. Why will you still be struck down? In other words, you just keep asking for it. Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. What a mess. He seems to be describing... Someone who is in terrible need of assistance. I think of that Jewish man who was attacked on his way to Jericho. And who was saved by the rejected one. The Samaritan who came and bound up the wounds. 
It's as though Israel is also in a position of want, and there needs to be a Savior to come. Yes, the rejected one who comes to save the nation of Israel. The punishment goes beyond that, though. It's also about the nation. Your country lies desolate, he says in verse 7. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion, that's a, a word for, a phrase for Jerusalem, kind of the apple of the apple of the eye. And Jerusalem is left. But it's like a booth out in a vineyard, a shanty, a little place where the servants stay. It's like a lodge in a cucumber field. It's like a besieged city. All around it is completely devastated. And just the city on the hill is left, soon to be taken over. And as you know, Isaiah is a prophet of doom as well as a prophet of consolation. Well, the good news is that this uh, same daughter of Zion in Isaiah chapter 52 and 62, Micah 4 and Zephaniah 3, uh, Zephaniah 3, uh, in Messiah's kingdom, the daughter of Zion, it says, will put on her beautiful garments and be holy and will rejoice and will prosper. So there's something good that's, that's ahead. Now, the next verse tells us that God's punishment would destroy the entire nation were it not for a believing remnant. That's what he says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. This is the first mention of the word remnant. And throughout all of Israel's troubles and her dispersions, God promises to leave a remnant This is one of the great themes of the Old Testament and the New. In Romans chapter 11, verse 5, Paul speaks about a remnant. And there, I believe he's talking about Jews who believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. That is the remnant within the nation of Israel today. But it says they are chosen by grace. This is the motivation that I have personally, and I think many of our people in Chosen People Ministries has. And that it have. That is that we are motivated to find the remnant. We know that there are those out there. And we know that it's a small number because a great blindness has happened to Israel in part. But we're looking for those uh, Goldbergs and those Glazers and those uh, Cruzes and those Zettersheims and uh, those who are Jewish and yet who will respond and, and trust the Lord. And that would avert judgment to the nation. Well, let's keep going and notice that there is condemnation as well. This is a condemnation that comes as a result of their sin. So verse 10 of the passage says, Hear the word of the Lord. Again, he mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a passage that Doug read earlier. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, this is a, an interesting thing. He's likening them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, it's a powerful indictment, and doubtless it greatly offended, it greatly offended the self-righteous Jews. Not only were Sodom and Gomorrah Gentile cities, but they were also so corrupt that God destroyed them completely from the face of the earth. So they knew their history in Isaiah's day, and they took it literally, didn't they? 
They realized that there were two cities that were completely uh, destroyed by God because of their sin. Well, the prophet doesn't draw back from delivering the most offensive messages. And I'd like to add that even in today's world, we should not draw back from preaching offensive messages that have to do with morality. And in that vein, I want you to think about the modern times and the sins, perhaps, of Sodom and Gomorrah and the nation of Israel today, which has one of the largest uh, gay pride celebrations in the world right there in Tel Aviv. Another thing is to note that the bo- both the rulers and the proper, the people are, are uh, guilty here. From a human perspective, the people blame the rulers and the rulers blame the people. That's what always goes on, doesn't it? And church failures, you know, if a church fails, it's the leader's fault. And if the church fails, it's the people's fault. They didn't follow the leaders. So we blame one another. It's an interesting uh, part of human nature, isn't it? Same thing is true in marriages and any other human relationships. We're always in the blame game. But the people, the people are responsible to follow in justice and righteousness. No one can blame someone else for his sin or her sin. A child can't blame a parent. A church member can't blame a pastor. A pastor can't blame a congregation. We are to take it on ourselves. We are to realize our own inability to please God. And how do we do that? There's a standard. Isn't it true? In that one verse, he says, Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear to the teachings of our God. This is the absolute standard by which every doctrine and deed is to be tested. The New Testament says essentially the same thing, I believe, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be thoroughly furnished into all good things. And so, it's always coming back to the Word. Thank God for a denomination, a movement. I'm learning more and more about the EPC that has taken a stand and said, we will not be moved. We are standing on the Word of God because God has revealed His truth to us and we want to proclaim it. Well, part of proclaiming the word of God is to look at the, the sin, the punishment that is deserved, the condemnation for what we are and what we do. And then see the, the beautiful, the beautiful uh, grace of God as well. Well, we've come to a, a point here where we're, we're looking at the passage now that was read earlier. And um, it emphasizes for us how bad it can be even within a religious setting. And this is where it gets a little bit oh, too close for comfort. Because the church, I believe, can commit the same kinds of sins that, was, that characterized Israel back in the day. And God rejects their religious rituals. Because they're not based on righteousness and truth, but are taught by this precept of men. And so in Isaiah 11, verse 15, we have, or 11 through 15, we have these kinds of things stated, as was read earlier. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? 
I've had enough burnt offerings and rams of rams, and even the fat of the well-fed beast. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Now, some might read that and say, well, of course not. We're in a different age now. We're not offering sacrifices. They were offering sacrifices. They were offering them in accordance with the Levitical code that was given by God. This is the sacrificial system. But they botched it up. Why? It wasn't because of the sacrifices. It was because of their lack of faith behind the sacrifices. It was because they were doing them in a, in a rote manner, perhaps, or perfunctory duty. I wonder, sometimes we talk about our sacrifices as believers as well. And we think that we're sacrificing so very much for the Lord. But I wonder if he would say, the multitude of your sacrifices, I don't even want them. Because they're, they're not based upon or motivated by the proper attitude. I don't know about you, but I think I've been guilty of that kind of worship. We probably all are because we're all human. But if it gets to be a characteristic if there's no vibrancy, if there's no reality, if there's no truth behind and uh, of what we're doing, then it may be time to change. Verse 12 says, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? I think about some of the large assemblies of Christians, or so-called Christians perhaps, who fill auditoriums and arenas, And yet I wonder if God looks down and says, you're trampling my courts. And then he says, don't give me any more of your offerings because they are vain offerings. And the incense that you give me is like an abomination to me. As I said in the last service, I thought of stinking thinking in the pew. Because if you have an attitudinal sin that's going on constantly, how in the world Do any of the things that we do in church impress our God? I just wonder if he might say, your incense is an abomination to me. And what about those special days that you celebrate? I know we all celebrate special days. For the Jewish people in that day and for the Jewish people today, my goodness, you should come up uh, during Sukkot uh, to Brooklyn with me and walk around and see what's going on. It's just an amazing array of all kinds of celebrations. And I'm not putting down the celebrations. In fact, many of our people love to uh, connect with their Jewishness through these uh, celebrations. But here's what God says to Israel. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me, and I'm weary of burying them. And not only that, when you spread out your hands. When you pray, this is a a phrase for praying. When you spread out your hands to me, I'll hide my eyes from you. That's a pretty active statement. It's like, oop, I'm going to turn away from that kind of prayer. And even though you make many, many prayers... You see, I think uh, sometimes our special days may be judged by God as well. Uh, Maybe our Christmases and our Easter's and our other things that we do in the church uh, don't have a place with God. 
Well, it's obvious that the Jewish people have always had a zeal for religion, though sometimes idolatrous and wicked. In fact, Paul says that, doesn't he, in chapter 10 of Romans? They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Sometimes I wonder if if Christians have a zeal for doing Christian stuff, but without knowledge and without the true attitude they should have. Well, the last point that is before the appeal is to say your hands were full, full of blood. Now, that's a hard one for us to apply to to the church today. It's a hard one to apply to the nation of Israel today, although there are many things that are going on in the Jewish community that would would uh, surprise you, I'm sure. But in Israel, what did they do? They sacrificed their own children to Molech. And um, they killed the prophets. So blood was on their hands, even to the point of murder. Uh, Christian nations have also slaughtered their children through abortion to the gods of lust, covetousness, and selfish convenience. So all of these things boil up in God's mind. I've punished you. You deserve it. There's condemnation. By the way, he still punishes believers today. Maybe you've had some of that discipline, the Hebrews 12 kind, where God chastens those he loves for a purpose to get our attention, right? And so uh, there is that punishment and there's condemnation. But there's also an appeal. And we come to that now in the 16th verse where he begins by calling them to repentance. And this sounds just like the law because it's saying, here's what you must do. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes and stop. Cease doing evil. Learn to to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, and bring justice to the fatherless. Now, these are all wonderful things. To plead the widow's cause as well. This presents the requirements of the law of Moses, which is obedience. But it also looks beyond the law to the offer of God's free grace when we fail. The law was never intended, please keep this in mind, the law was never intended as a means of salvation. It was given to reveal God and his righteousness and our inability to keep his law. Whether we're talking about the Mosaic Code, the law of Moses, or the law of the Messiah, the Sermon on the Mount. It is impossible to keep either one. It shows us our sinfulness. It's that mirror that we look at and we see how much we need the grace of God. Do you need the grace of God today? Does this church need the grace of God? Do the people walking up and down Coney Island Avenue need the grace of God? Yes, they do. And if I'm going to be a missionary to the Jewish people or to anybody... I've got to point out the need that they have to be forgiven for violating the Holy One of Israel. At some point, that has to be the message. I hope you've availed yourself of the grace of God. It's a wonderful invitation, isn't it? We get down to the point where, where, what am I supposed to do? And he says, come. Kind of like what Jesus said, come to me, all you who are Weary and heavy laden. You find rest for your souls. 
My burden is easy. So come, come to Jesus is the, that's the, that's the, and what's he say here? Come, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's the message. That's the message of grace that we have here. And I I must say uh, one thing in closing. And that is that um, the word reason in this passage is a unique Hebrew word called yachach. And the Hebrew word is a council. It's it's, it's like a courtroom. And it really is the term for arguing or convincing or deciding a case so that the people were to be convinced by the argumentation of God that he was right and they were wrong about their condition. Once we recognize our condition and our Ability to stray, even though redeemed, then we experience the grace of God. God is not challenging his people to reform their lives by their own efforts. He's challenging them instead to return to the proper response to what he has done for them. That challenge reveals that God is the initiator in his relationship with us. So, come let us reason together. Accept God's judgment. Say the same thing that God does about sin. The New Testament word is confession. Homologeo. Say the same thing that God says. And once you do, once you reach that, reach that point of vulnerability, then it's true that the scarlet, interestingly, the color of Jesus Christ's robe when bearing our sins, Matthew twenty-seven twenty-eight. Rahab's thread, all of these things come back to mind. And one illustration to end, the rabbis, this is the rabbis, not the Christian world. The rabbis say that when the lot used to be taken, a scarlet ribbon was bound on the scapegoat's head. And after the high priest had confessed his and the people's sins over it, what happened? That red became white. The miracle ceased according to them, about 40 years before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 A.D. And that's exactly when Jesus Christ was crucified, a remarkable admission by the adversaries to the gospel. Isn't that fascinating? My suggestion to you is that God has made it possible for the scarlet uh, to make white, pure white. This is the message for today. I I trust that uh, it's one that you can take to heart and perhaps apply because that funnel that I mentioned before, we're coming down. It's the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Well, what is the application? Well, it's every unbeliever in the world today that moves in the opposite direction of God. It applies to modern-day Israel in all of their observances that are zealous but without knowledge. It applies to... The church, maybe not this church so much, I hope and pray not, but certainly to the nominal church that's out there. And it applies to you, and it applies to me. Uh, May God's grace just pour into our lives this day. But it won't happen unless you recognize your sinful condition and confess to him.
Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, this time that we can explore your word. And uh, I pray that uh, those within the sound of my voice would hear uh, what you want them to hear. Uh, Would you please strip away those things would not be uh, helpful or instructive or edifying. But, Lord, may we leave this place today uh, glad that we have heard about the grace of our Lord Jesus. And I pray B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach in the name of Jesus, who is the Messiah. Amen. There a song? Yes. Okay.